0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. So did you see that story about the guy in Long Island, New York, who had illegally converted his basement into seven bedrooms? Well, besides these being illegal and not having things like smoke detectors or carbon monoxide detectors, he also had a deer in his yard, which he was keeping as a pet. And of course, we think that's just absurd. You know there is this desire among people to have exotic animals or wild animals as pets. Animals that really shouldn't be living with people. And here's another one that happened the other day in the parking lot of a Walmart, a woman apparently brought her pet monkey with her and the monkey gets away and is climbing on the shopping cart rack and a worker tries to rescue or carry the monkey. Well, woman freaks out saying, let him go, let him go, let him go. If he bites you, they will put him down. So give me a break, people. Why is this woman bringing her pet monkey to the store? And why does she have a pet monkey anyway? Well, it turns out that Lori does have a little bit of experience with the keeping of exotic animals as pets. Uh, This is an interesting story that goes back to a more innocent time where really we didn't know better. Here's how she describes
1: it. Listen, most of my animals today listeners probably can guess that I strongly oppose the ownership of exotic animals as pets. Last season on Animals Today, we spoke to ethologist Mark Bekoff about the ethical, legal, and practical issues arising from private ownership of exotic animals. But I will tell you, when I was younger, much younger, I should say, just about 15 years old, I did have a close and personal relationship with an exotic pet. It was a bobcat, and at the time I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and saw absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with the ownership of a wild animal as a pet. And so this is how this little story goes. I became very close to a couple who were friends of my parents, and this lovely couple who chose not to have any kids owned this bobcat. Buttercup was her name. Buttercup soon became this couple's child. I would often visit them at their home. We would all have dinner together. We would go on little walks together, the three of us, and Buttercup. And mind you, this was not their first bobcat. Before Buttercup was Roberta, whom I did not know. This was in 1962, just a few years before I was born, when they purchased a four-month old Roberta from a place in Los Angeles called Uncle Jim's Jungle for $350. And back then in 1962, there was uh, no restrictions in owning a bobcat in California. Roberta lived to a nice long age of 16 years. And when they lost Roberta, that's when they got Buttercup, which was in 1978. And the rules and regulations changed somewhat, which made it more difficult to own a bobcat but my friends were uh, known by the department of fish and game and the authorities knew how well they treated their first bobcat so the uh, restrictions were waived with them and they were able to purchase their second bobcat this 3 week old Buttercup, who also ended up living until 16 years of age. Now, at this point, the laws in California changed again, making it virtually impossible for an individual to obtain a bobcat. Of course, if you, were, if you owned a zoo or a wild animal park, that was different, but individuals could not obtain one. Now, in catching up with my dear friends last year and them knowing I'm an advocate for the animals, I did ask him to reflect upon his 33 years of experience in owning two wild animals as a pet. And he reminded me that it was not easy. It was truly a 24-hour a day job. They were inspected two times per year by the LA Department of Animal Regulations and also by the Department of Fish and Game making sure they complied with the double security doors and burglar alarms, excuse me, burglar bars on their windows and all the other regulations and rules that they had to follow. Now, he didn't want to get into a discussion of the ethics and moral issues that surround the ownership of an exotic pet. For instance, preventing a wild animal from being raised in his natural environment and socializing with his species of his own kind and being confined to an unnatural limited space and essentially being raised and living a domesticated life. Listen, it was a different time, and I think we were starting to think twice about these practices, so I really didn't want to press the issue with him. But he did recognize and admit to me that the wild instinct never goes away in a wild pet. So although tamed and raised from birth, and defanged and declawed, which is another unethical topic. We're going to address it another time. His point was, although tamed and loving to them, in an instant, the cat can bite or attack a child or a stranger with any sort of seemingly insignificant trigger, like a smell or simple gesture or someone wearing a strange-looking hat. You know what I'm trying to say here. So at that time, and like I said, I was 15, 16 years old and, and spent quite a bit of time with buttercup I thought nothing about the ethical issues surrounding the ownership of a wild animal in no way did it even cross my mind in fact I thought this was the luckiest and most spoiled feline I've ever met and just as you and I might treat our cat or dog as part of the family and as a child so did they this bobcat was their child I'll tell you, the difference is you and I would feed our cats a 99-cent you know, can of Fancy Feast, and they would give their cat a $15 steak for dinner. But again, not once at that time did I ever think about if it were inhumane or unethical to keep a wild animal as a pet. Thirty years later, and as a radio talk show host advocating for the animals, I think often about this, especially When I read about or hear about on the news over and over again, people getting mauled by their exotic pets, whether a bobcat, a python, a chimpanzee, a bear, whatever, wild animals should not be pets. We know better now. Reason one is I alluded to before, is that holding a wild animal as a pet is cruel to the animal because it prevents him or her from doing what they're supposed to do in the wild. I don't think that people should have the legal ability to prevent a wild animal from leading a normal animal life. And especially the business of breeding and selling such animals like, say, a boa constrictor. I mean, what's the point of that? To amuse the owner? I really think we need to get away from this. Now, I'm a big proponent of animal sanctuaries. In general, sanctuaries provide a safe place for wild and sometimes not so wild animals to live out their lives after they become unmanageable by owners who don't or who didn't think ahead about the needs of a wild animal or how big a snake or an alligator or a bear would get. And yes, even a bobcat or when performing animals are no longer needed to perform or when wild animals are rescued after being injured such that they would not be able to live out their lives in the wild. Sanctuaries provide a place for them. And animal sanctuaries are a great place to bring children to learn about animals and how some people can actually be kind to animals and how to really show them compassion and respect Children remember these lessons and carry them off into their relationships with other people as well. Compare that to what I think they learned, say, at the circus. That being that it's okay and normal to control and abuse animals, to make them do unnatural things, and to cheer when they do their unnatural things or their tricks for us. To me, these are just not the right examples we want to set for our children. The circus, I'll repeat this again, is not the way we want to educate our children about these beautiful living creatures. And how about the fact that a wild animal living as a pet may just kill you or someone you love? Oh, that would never happen to me. Well, until the day it does. Remember last year in um, Oxford, Florida, a two-year-old girl, Shauna Hare, was strangled, asphyxiated by her mother's pet Burmese albino python. This snake, by the way, had escaped the enclosure before, and it was not registered with the state as required. So not only is the child dead, but her mother and boyfriend have been charged with third-degree murder, manslaughter, and child abuse, as they should be. A horror story all around it and just as an aside the the uh, florida everglades are being overrun with released burmese pythons which are set free when the owners get scared or realize they have made a big mistake pythons in the everglades think about that and don't think a big cat won't hurt you or kill you too of course they're cute when they're small they can hurt you from 1998 To 2003, in the United States, nine people were killed by privately held tigers. In Texas, for some reason Texas more than other states, I'm not sure why, there are many, many tigers held as pets. And not long ago, a 10-year-old girl was killed by a tiger, tiger while she was helping her stepfather groom the animal. The tiger clamped her head in its jaws and a three-year-old was killed by his grandfather's pet when the child was posing for a photograph inside the cage my god maybe you can't fix stupid but we can and we should make it harder for these idiotic adults to endanger children and even someone doesn't die or the owner doesn't go to jail, be ready for a civil lawsuit if a snake or a bear or a tiger hurts someone. Animal tax cases are like red meat to lawyers, and they will even help fund the costs of the case if there's a homeowner's insurance policy in place. Did you know that? Remember uh, Carla Nash, who had her face torn off by Travis the chimp? Well, she sued her former friend for $50 million, and her lawyers are trying to obtain permission to sue the state of Connecticut for 150 million, alleging the state's actions and failures to act resulted in grievous injuries to Miss Nash. Look at all the trouble and misery that happens when you try to make a pet out of a wild animal. So please, please do not be tempted into getting a baby big cat or a python or a monkey visit an animal sanctuary instead and consider supporting them by volunteering or donating you're
0: listening to animals today see you after the break
2: for the past quarter century international society for animal rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org.
1: Welcome back to Animals Today. Do you remember a few weeks ago when everyone was freaking out about Zika? There was news stories everywhere and stories of the mosquitoes carrying the disease and gradually moving north like they were going to affect the southern United States. Well, in response to this, and in order to cut down the mosquito populations in areas like Florida, some communities sprayed insecticides pretty widely. And how surprising, the next day we hear more stories about millions of dead honeybees in those areas. So what exactly happened, and could the bee killings have been avoided? I want to welcome Dr. Eric Musson, formerly with the UC Davis Department of Entomology and Nematology and Eric. Eric is a bee expert. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, contacting me again. Eric, what exactly happened here? And what is the rationale for spraying insecticide to protect us from the Zika virus?
3: Well, any of these diseases—West Nile, Zika—there's there's more that can be transmitted by mosquitoes. Can be a real problem if that disease gets into the mosquito population and starts being distributed amongst the people in the area. So the the people in public health tend to try to keep the mosquito levels as low as possible, so they don't run into those situations. And they have a couple of approaches. One is to try to get all the places where there's a puddle of water where those mosquitoes might breed and put some kind of a material in or on the water that stops the mosquito larvae and pupae from ever getting to adults. Uh, If they haven't done that or if the uh, insects escape them or they missed the puddles or whatever, uh, then we have quite a number of adults, most of which come out at dusk and dawn to do their biting. So when they find out that there is the disease within some of those mosquitoes, because They have sentinel animals out there uh, that build up resistance, immunity to some of these diseases. And if that happens, then they know the disease is around. Or they even grab the mosquitoes once in a while and check their bodies to see if they've got the disease in them. So when they do find the disease, then they decide, well, about the only thing that we can do now is try to eliminate as many adult mosquitoes as possible in, in order to uh, keep people from being bitten and, and having the disease transmitted to them.
1: What insecticides were used and where were they employed? And what issues or problems were there with using these insecticides in this manner? Well,
3: I, I think things are kind of focused now on using a, a pesticide called Naled, and it is something that's sometimes used in commercial agriculture. But when when they use it for mosquito control, they back the dose down to somewhere between a 20th to a 32nd of the normal dose. They increase uh, an adjuvant, as we call it, and usually it's piperonal butoxide, which uh, prevents the insects that are hit with the spray detoxifying the chemical. It just turns off their detoxification system. So it only takes small amounts to, you know, kill the insects. But interestingly, when they do that, it's normally the smallest insects that, that have the most problem. And you normally find that um, you know, ants and aphids and uh, mosquitoes and other little insects like that are more much more susceptible to these tiny little droplets. And the bigger uh, insects like butterflies and grasshoppers. and and even bees don't seem to have too much of a problem unless and there's always an unless here. Mm -hmm. It appears as though that was the material that's being used in the way that it's normally used but when they did these uh, dusk sprays apparently nobody paid too much attention to the fact that on warm, warm nights honeybees don't all go right back into the box as soon as they get home. Mm. They'll be flying back and most of them will be back around sunset but if it's really warm Little bees have warm bodies to begin with, and if it's warm in the hive and, and after the bees are trying to cool the hive down inside, then those foragers don't go back inside until later in the evening when it gets cool. So they kind of form what we call a beard out in front of each of the colonies around the entrance so there's these masses of bees out in front and if they sprayed right over that and there's a direct hit then there's an awful lot of small droplets falling on these insects and it's enough to kill them so i apparently that's what happened they sprayed during the time that the bees were out there in huge numbers and it just knocked down basically killed everything that was out in front of the hive
1: i read a news story where a beekeeper said her area was sprayed and she had no warning and lost her entire colony
3: Well, you know, agriculturally in California, if a uh, honeybee toxic material is going to be used, then the applicator uh, has to notify the agricultural commissioner of that county and tell them that the spray is going to go on. And then the applicator has to wait as much as 48 hours, but sometime in that time thing, until the beekeepers that are have their colonies registered in that area uh, have been notified. And then the beekeeper can, if he or she wishes, uh, physically move the bees away, cover the bees up with something so that the spray won't hit them. This nailed thing normally, about the time it lands, and and sits there for a few minutes, it isn't going to be much of a problem anyway. It's it's these direct hits that are the problem. So in some cases, if it's not too hot, you can lightly cover up the entrance and cover up the bees with with something. Plastic's about the worst of the bunch, but uh, wet burlap bags sometimes the beekeepers will use. And that should be enough to protect you, but you have to know it's going to happen. And the uh, public health People do not operate under the agriculture rules, and so they are allowed to use these bee toxic products without notifying uh, probably much of anybody if they want to. But fortunately out here in, on my end of California anyway, uh, we've been getting, you know, weekly, like a week from now we intend to spray. Two days from now we intend to spray. Mm. It's kind of hard to miss it if you're somebody with with bees that you want to protect. That's what should have happened. Apparently it didn't.
1: Eric, there are many ways to control mosquitoes. Should we be doing other things besides using these poisonous insecticides? Well,
3: actually, we're... You are kind of limited on what can be done the the best bet that causes usually the, the least amount of environmental destruction is to try to get to those breeding areas and um, actually put something into the water there's materials like uh, bacillus thuringiensis that can be put in one of the uh, strains and it gets into the uh, gut of the larvae mosquitoes and kills them. Now, it also kills some midges, too. So you can't say that you're not exactly doing anything to the environment. But when it comes down to it, killing mosquitoes and midges in the immature stage, I think, is preferable to waiting until the adults are all around, and then you have to go get them with something that, that's rougher on the environment than those those early approaches.
1: Eric, are you worried about Zika becoming an epidemic? Or are we overreacting?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell because when you make a prediction, you're almost always wrong on these sort of things. We've had concerns about West Nile and some other diseases, the encephalitis and whatnot. And uh, when, when they get into an area and, and they get into a lot of mosquitoes, we normally see more cases than we normally would. Uh, but whether or not this could ever, you know, become a, a massive epidemic, I don't know because everybody. Would have to be chomped on by mosquitoes, which I don't think happens. And uh, lots and lots and lots of people would have to be carrying this, so it can be picked up by one mosquito and moved on, you know, to another host. And um, no, I don't. <laughs> what can I say? You could have a lot of people in one place at one time that could get into trouble if there was, if there was a. Uh, a reservoir around if this disease and a whole bunch of mosquitoes capable of carrying it, then you held a, I don't know, a football game or something like that, you might be able to get quite a few people into trouble that way. But I don't know that it's going to become what you and I call an, an epidemic across the country.
1: Don't go away. When we come back, we're going to ask Eric why we should care so much about the honeybees. Welcome back. We're speaking to Dr. Eric Musson, bee expert. Eric, can you remind us why we should care about honeybees?
3: Well, the primary reason that we should have concern about whether or not we can keep our honeybees healthy and going is because they are so involved in our food chain. I'm sure people recognize that in a crop like apples the honeybee had to go to that apple flower and move some pollen around, pollinate it so we could get the apple. Uh, they've probably heard, because it's such a big crop, about the almond crop. The almond crop is really huge, and it's the same sort of thing. But in that particular case, the pollen has to come from one variety of tree and be moved over to a compatible variety in order to get a nut form. And um, the bees are just... You know, almost totally the only thing out there that 's getting that job done, so we 're moving about i don 't know close to close to two million colonies of bees into California to do the almonds, but maybe people don 't eat almonds and they don 't care but if you if you like your veggies um Carrots only grow when you have carrot seeds, and honeybees actually are the insects that uh, pollinate carrots. And they pollinate onion seed, and they pollinate all the the melons and cucumbers and squash and pumpkins and all that sort of stuff. Uh, The cauliflower, cauliflower, broccoli, and all those crops. So if you like veggies... If you like fruits, a lot of them, uh, berries, then they've got to have a pollinator. And in most cases, since the honeybee is the only one that you can pick up a whole bunch of them, put them on a truck, move them in, use them, and then move them back out again, um, they tend to be the workhorses of the industry. So that's actually why they're most important to most of us. Honey production is there. It's real. Uh, producing bulk bees and queens to refill empty boxes, and we've got an awful lot of empty boxes all the time now, unfortunately. That's part of the industry, too. But, but from your point of view and mine, it's, it's a matter of food. If we want, if we want the uh, fruits and veggies that we enjoy on a daily basis, then bees got to be pollinating them somewhere.
1: And people take the role of pollinators, including bees, for granted, don't they?
3: Yeah, but that's not exactly a hard thing to do because, in, in let's say, a backyard garden or, or something where you don't need too many of them, uh, we have, I believe, it's approaching seventeen hundred species of what we refer to as native bees, and and all but the uh, all but the bumblebees tend to be solitary, which means. The female gets mated, and then she goes and either digs a tunnel in the ground or finds a uh, hole in the wall or something like that, and she flies out and collects nectar and pollen until she's got a pretty nice little dough ball in that place, lays the egg on it, seals it off starts a new dough ball. Well, with time, that egg will hatch, the larva will eat the dough ball, and if it's the right amount of food, we get ourselves a new bee. And this can be a seasonal thing. Uh, She does her work in year one, and we get their offspring in year two. So... Yes, there's a whole bunch of those kind of solitary bees out there. Most people have probably seen the big black ones that look like bumblebees, uh, but they're not. They're carpenter bees. Mm. And the female chews a hole in uh, timber and then has little cells off to the side, and that's where she puts her dough ball and her eggs and whatnot and then seals them up with sawdust. And, um they're they're all over California. Some of them are as big as your thumb. Some of them are more the size of your little finger. Two different species. But they're out there. So, yeah, the native bees are pollinating. And, you know, it's not the honeybees that keep all the meadows nice up in the Sierras and whatnot. Those are all wild bees, a lot of them bumblebees. We just, you know, we, and you're right, we don't think about it. We just think the flowers come, the flowers go, the fruits and nuts, the shrubs, the trees, everything makes it. But a lot of them need bees.
1: Last year when you were on the show, the big story about bees was that their populations were getting dangerously low. Is that still a concern now, or have the populations bounced back?
3: Well, the the things that made the populations drop before seem to still be in sway. But the beekeepers, after they work at these problems for a while, can find ways to, uh, let's say, try to get back to where they want to be. In other words, have their boxes with some bees in them. So uh, they're doing a lot more what we call splitting, where if they have a fairly substantial-sized colony, they'll take half of the bees and brood, move it into a new box, and then put a new queen in green in it and those will grow up and now you'll have two but the problem with that is during the grow up phase they're not big enough for pollination and not big enough for honey production so what a lot of these people are actually shooting for is the hope that they can get their numbers really up they'll make it through the winter and they can rent them for pollination of almonds because that's by far the highest price you can get for your bees And then after that, they'll use them for everything they can, knowing that sooner or later some of them are going to get into too much pesticide and and start falling apart, and that's what's going on. There was a study that just came out recently where they took a look at all the data they had collected so far on pesticides in stored pollen and in the bees, and they tried to relate that to some phenomenon amongst the bees that they could, they could stick their finger on. And uh, two things came out of that data. Number one, the more different insecticides that the honeybees had in their pollen and in their bee bodies, but the more, more exposure to different insecticides the more likely the colony was to die and then the second one that was interesting is the more exposure to different fungicides the bees happen to have the more likely it was they'd lose their queen Mm. and of course if you got a colony without a queen and you don't catch that before long you don't have a colony
1: last year we also spoke about the use and misuse of insecticides in agriculture do you want to give us your thoughts about that
3: well, generally speaking, um, the agricultural products are are supposed to be labeled in such a manner that the bees ought not to get into too much trouble with them because if they are toxic to bees, theres a warning on the label that says you know something like this is, product is um, highly toxic to bees don 't put it on the bloom uh, when the bees are visiting something along those lines. I would say that if you were a grower and you were renting bees, you certainly would follow that because you wouldn't want to blast your own bees and not get your crop. But the thing is, the neighbor down the road a few miles away uh, may may have a crop that's in bloom and attractive to bees, but um, he hasn't seen bee boxes anywhere. So he just decides, well, okay, I can use this stuff. I don't have any bees around. But he didn't go out and check. He didn't go out in the field and look to see if they were there because he might have been surprised. Bees will fly up to four miles or a little bit more away to get their food. So they, they cover it. That's a long distance. Think about it, four miles to go get food if there isn't enough around where they are. So some of those materials are used, and they probably from one point of view they're not used wrong because the individual had no idea or that there were any bees in the field so the material was used the bees went in the field and and they really get into trouble i think that's how it normally happens i'm I'm pretty sure people that rent bees don't kill their own bees an accident can happen once in a while that'll happen but but generally i think it's something that generally happens at the neighbors when you're in an urban setting you still can have the same problems, but it's a little bit different. Because now you're talking about uh, a golf course or a landfill mm-hmm. or, you know, it's hard to say, your neighbors who, who are using some of these materials, uh, probably not worrying too much about the label now because they're, you know, the the, the ag people have to really watch the labels. But so locally – Things can be used, parks and recreation, uh, <laughs> who knows? But if they're not careful, your bees can get into those. And, and the, final, the final thing about all of this is, generally speaking, the bees get into trouble when they bring back contaminated pollen. So if something's growing out there and it's in bloom, and it's going to be a relatively short bloom, not something that blooms all season, we have things that do that, Alfalfa, cotton, some of the vine seeds. But if it's something that only blooms once, while it's in bloom, just don't put anything on it. Because we know now that it doesn't matter if it's an insecticide, a fungicide, an herbicide, an acaricide, uh, even some of the adjuvants, which are the things you mix with them to make them work better. Those all tend to be. Toxic to the bees and they have to detoxify them if they get into it and the energy it takes to detoxify then isn't there for them to develop property as properly as larvae and pupae uh, it's not there for the immune system to work the way it should it's not there for them to digest their food and make royal jelly the way they ought to it's not there so that they have energy to fly around and forage properly so there's there's negative consequences even if it isn't acutely toxic which means it kills them instantly or even sublethal which means it kills them a little bit later shortens their lifespan. But it's still taking energy that a healthy bee needs to do the things healthy bees are supposed to be doing. So these chemicals are, are unfortunately ubiquitous now, and the bees get into them practically everywhere. So it's, it's just something to keep in mind. Keep the sprays off the blooms, out of the pollen, and you'll probably go a long way in protecting the bees.
1: Bee expert Dr. Eric Musson, thank you very much, sir.
3: You're very welcome.
1: Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Your Animals Today tip of the day is about urine spraying by cats. Spraying is a way for cats to mark their territory. Spraying is mainly a trait found in male cats, but females will also mark when they are in heat. Of course, in house cats, it's quite undesirable, but fixing your cat is the best way to correct this problem. Litter box issues are another common cause of unwanted spraying. But if the behavior persists, ask your veterinarian to make sure there are no other medical problems present. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day.
4: I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org.
1: Welcome back to the show. I want to tell you a bit about Susie, our older Rhodesian Ridgeback and her spine condition, which it turns out is pretty common in dogs. First, if you don't know, Susie, who is about 12 years old, is thought to be a purebred Ridgeback, but she's relatively small for one, only about 70 pounds. I literally rescued her from the mean hot streets here in the desert after feeding her daily for several months, and she was quite ill when she finally allowed me to lift her in the car one evening. Our veterinarian promptly operated and removed her infected uterus and ovaries and kept her for a few days in the hospital on antibiotics and IV flu. Amazingly, Susie made a great recovery and we've enjoyed seven years with her as part of our family, even with her funny behavioral issues from being homeless and living on the streets for quite a while. Well, Susie recently has developed weakness in her hind legs and an abnormal gait, so we decided to have her evaluated by a veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen, to see if we can help her. Dr. Hansen is with the Veterinary Neurology Center in Testing, California, and also sees patients in Palm Desert, California. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hansen.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Stephen, you had a chance to evaluate Susie. Can you recount what you heard from us and what your initial thoughts were?
2: Yeah, so initially when I took a look at Susie, what I saw is that her back legs were stiff. Um, She had a little bit of scuffing in her paws when she walked. And also when I pinched her toes, when I tested her reflexes, she wasn't able to pull her legs back toward her body with the normal strength. So it looked like she had a slight decrease in her reflexes. And those symptoms were suggestive of what we call a neuropathy, which is a nerve condition. And that can be caused by a lot of different things. So the first thing we did was run some blood tests, uh, ruled out a lot of medical conditions that can cause that sort of nerve degeneration.
1: What are the most common medical problems older dogs get that affects their gait and leg strength?
2: Well, probably the most common is arthritis. As we all get older, our joints get a little more uh, stiff and sometimes painful. And so as dogs age, it's very common for them to get arthritis. But once they start to cough or look wobbly or if they have a problem controlling their bowels or bladder, that is more suggestive of a neurological problem. And the most common cause of a neurologic problem in older dogs is disc disease. So oftentimes they'll have degeneration and bulging of a disc, which is a little cushion between the vertebrae and the spine and that'll bulge up and pinch either a nerve or the spinal cord, and that can cause weakness. Usually that also has pain associated with it. Then another potential cause is what I mentioned before, just the neuropathy, which is a problem more in the, the nerves. It usually affects the nerves lower down in the legs, closer toward the paws first, and it kind of works its way up. That can happen due to low thyroid function, Liver or kidney disease. It can happen secondary to some sort of cancer. A lot of times it happens without any definable cause. Another thing that we see fairly commonly is a condition called degenerative myelopathy, which is a genetic disease of the spinal cord that affects German shepherds most commonly, but uh, boxers are close behind in their prevalence, as are Welsh corgis and a variety of other breeds. Then uh, probably lastly, tumors can cause weakness, tumors either in the nerves or in the, the spine. And then probably the least common but still occasionally occurs is an infection in the spine called discospondylitis. So there are a lot of potential causes of weakness, especially in older dogs.
1: So, Stephen, you had this suspicion that Susie might have degenerative myelopathy, and you had to send out a blood test for that. What is degenerative myelopathy?
2: That's a a disease, like I mentioned, is genetic. So it's passed on through the generation, and it causes a progressive weakness. It's not painful, that's the only good thing about the disease, but it does affect the back legs first and cause them to get progressively weak, and it can ultimately affect the front legs also. That disease has been researched extensively, and researchers have now found the gene responsible for that condition. Interestingly, it's the same genetic mutation that occurs in people with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So now we do have a genetic test for it. If we run that genetic test and it comes out negative, we can be pretty sure the dog does not have degenerative myelopathy. But if it's positive, we know they're carrying the gene. That doesn't necessarily mean they have the disease or even that they're going to start showing symptoms of the disease within their lifetime, but it does indicate they have the tendency to develop that condition.
1: And Stephen, as you know, um, on Susie's test for degenerative myelopathy, this came back negative, and then you mentioned the possibility of a tumor, but your suspicions for this were low. So your diagnosis for Susie is degenerative disc disease, and what specifically does that mean?
2: Yeah, normally the the discs of the spine are like little jelly donuts. They have a tough outer part, a squishy center, and they sit between the vertebrae, and they're right underneath the spinal cord. The spinal cord runs in the tunnel of bone. So when that disc degenerates, it becomes more firm, and it starts to weaken, and it can start to bulge up. And when it does that, it pushes up on the spinal cord. The spinal cord has nowhere to go because it's in this tunnel of bone, so the disc compresses the spinal cord within that canal. That also causes inflammation and swelling in the spinal cord, which makes the weakness worse. So when we give something like a cortisone anti-inflammatory, it reduces that swelling and inflammation, so it helps the spinal cord function better. What it doesn't do, though, is take the pressure off of the spinal cord, and sometimes when that pressure is severe enough, we have to do surgery to remove the bulging part of that disc, take the pressure off of the spinal cord so that uh, it can function better and the hind legs can become stronger.
1: And as you know, Dr. Hansen, we began a treatment course of an oral steroid, which has helped. Of course, there are many possible unwanted side effects when an individual is taking steroids, but we found that she's doing pretty well on a relatively low dosage of steroids per day. Now, she's getting older, but this really is allowing her a very good quality of life, and we're very pleased with how well she's done. It's been a number of months now, and she's a content older dog who seems to be in little or no pain who can take short walks with us. Dr. Hansen, any tips or comments you'd like to share with the listeners about back diseases in dogs?
2: Sure. I think, you know, oftentimes as dogs age, they start to have problems with their back end, and some people just attribute that to old age. And I think it's good to not just assume that this is a normal part of aging process if your dog starts to have weakness, in their back legs. It's really important to have your vet evaluate that because there may be something that can be done to help that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a major surgery. So sometimes just medication, um, sometimes even something as non invasive as acupuncture can help a dog's mobility. So if uh, one starts to see their dog having decreased mobility, it's really important to have your local vet check that out.
1: Very good. Veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen. thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.